We're back in Ephesians tonight, starting in verse uh, 22 of chapter 5. We are, next week will be our last um, regular large group, our last time looking at Ephesians as we wrap up the book. But tonight we take up a passage you've probably heard before, mostly read at weddings. Um, And there's just a thing, we could spend a whole semester on this passage. Uh, We could spend a whole semester just on the part about husbands and wives. I just want you to remember that the message of Ephesians, what Paul has been telling us is that this grand mystery, this grand secret, maybe bad word, but this grand mystery, this plan put in place before the foundations of the world, God has been unfolding. And in Jesus Christ, that mystery has been fully made known to the world. And that mystery is that God is going to take everything that is broken meaning everything. And he's going to bring it back together again in wholeness in the person of Jesus. Okay. And so the first three chapters kind of told us about the magnitude, the uh, cosmic implications of what God in Jesus has done for us. Chapter four, Paul started talking about how, what God has done for us, how that mystery has been unfolded and revealed to us in Jesus Christ directs how we live. Okay. And now, um, what Paul does here is he addresses now the three most fundamental relationships in life. Um, And as much as I would like to cover all three equally, um, I have a sneaking suspicion that marriage is the one that you all would like to hear about a little bit. So I'm going to speak in general terms at first, and then we're just going to kind of talk about marriage. Um, Mowage was a movie quote, if you didn't get that. Surely everybody got that. All right, let's read this together. Ephesians 5, starting... I'm actually going to start in verse 21, just so you'll understand the flow. Verse 21, Paul says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present, to the, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves the wife, his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, but as just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and feet with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their, their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we just ask that you would speak through your word here. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to all of our being. We pray uh, by the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to jump right into it tonight. I want to look at three things. Relationships, roles, and redemption. Okay? Relationships. We're all experts in relationships. We're all experts in relationships. At least in terms of experience. We're all experienced enough to have felt the sting, um, the hurt, the crushing weight of disappointment that can come in relationships. This is dating or not dating. Not, not necessarily dating. Um, Just relationships in general. We've also felt at one time or another how uplifting, um, how nourishing, how strengthening relationships can be. Sometimes we swing wildly uh, between those two poles. Some of our deepest, most painful scars are the results of broken relationships, abused relationships, oppressive relationships. But at the same time, some of our happiest times would have been glaringly incomplete had we not had someone to share it with, right? There are times when all we want is to be alone. And there are times when we could not be happier or more thankful that we aren't, right? We were made for relationship. God, the one in whose image uh, we were made, God, as he has existed, has existed in eternity. The Trinity, this profound... um, um, idea of God as one God existing in three persons, as he's existed in eternity, has existed as a perfect community, a perfect relationship. And that's the image that we're made in. Let us make man in our own image. And that image is not complete in man. That image is complete. It becomes the crown of creation when it is man and woman, right? So as much as I'd like to take time and and talk a lot about relationships in general, I want to hone in tonight on this one, this biggest section here in our passage, uh, marriage. Because marriage, as the first human relationship created, is the pinnacle of all, all relationships. Therefore, it's kind of a blueprint, it's kind of a directory that should define the rest of our relationships. There's something God is doing in the institution of marriage which He instituted. That directs all of our other relationships. There's two basic things that the Bible teaches about marriage, okay? One is it was instituted by God. Adam had nothing to do with it. God set up the first marriage. It's instituted by God. The second one is that it's designed, as Paul kind of eloquently portrays here, marriage has always been designed to be a reflection of the saving love of God for us in Jesus. So two basic things that the Bible teaches about marriage. But let's just take, as we talk about relationships in general, marriage in general, let's just take, it doesn't take a rocket surgeon, right? I saw a bumper sticker to that effect. 
um, one time. I liked it. It doesn't take a rocket surgeon to know that there's a prevailing pessimism about marriage as an institution, right? Um, I've quoted her like nonstop since I read her book because I loved her book. But Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, um, uh, she wrote this book, um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Unlikely because she was a a feminist lesbian professor in the Northeast and she became a Christian um, and she's now married with kids. Um, But she says um, when her and her friends, um, she she was an advocate for the LGBT community. She said when her and her friends talked about marriage, she would say, why? Um... Why mess up a good thing with a sick institution? Right? That was kind of her prevailing mindset about marriage in those times. There's a prevailing pessimism in our day about the institution of marriage. The divorce rate is, twi- is nearly twice uh, today as it was uh, 50 years ago. 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents. Today, only 60% of births are. I thought I turned down my phone. Sorry. Um, In 1960, 72%, 72%, nearly three quarters of all adults were married. In 2008, half are, only half. Um, One statistic says by the the late 30s, um, over 60% of women will have lived with a partner but never married, okay? Uh, but what's interesting is we look at kind of these, these glaring facts about marriage and maybe how we're not doing so well at it is we, or, or our bad views of it uh, because of the statistics um, that we see or the counter trends that studies are showing, stuff like this. Um, and I'm going to say a lot of things tonight that I can't necessarily qualify because we don't have time. But if we want to talk, talk to me. But there are studies that show, I got this from a book, like I read it, okay? There's a citation out there somewhere. Um, there are studies that show that people who live or cohabit with partners before marriage... Um, actually have a higher rate of divorce than those who have not, okay? Uh, Even though living together in our day is seen as a way of foolproofing whether you should get married or not, right? Uh, The prevailing thought is that one should be financially secure before you get married. But studies show uh, that people who were continuously married had 75, this is stunning, 75% more wealth at retirement than those who were single or divorced, Married men have been shown over and over again in studies to earn 10 to 40% more than single men. Okay? So there's these weird counter trends that are showing us, well, one, we have a pessimistic, pessimistic view of marriage because of the things that it's resulting in. But at the same time, there's studies that are showing that marriage actually is good for people. It produces good things. And there's one study about this uh, pessimism that uh, prevails amongst us that, that concludes this. It says that the pessimism of mo- uh, toward marriage of most young adults is not supported by the older consensus, meaning it's not the way it used to be. It's against the teaching of all major religions, and it's unsupported by accumulated evidence of most recent social science. So what we're seeing is actually marriage is a good thing. It leads to happier and healthier lives. Yet we are seeing that we aren't doing it well. And we mess it up. We know marriage can be a messy place. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he concludes all this with this. He says that marriage is and used to be viewed as a public institution for the common good. But now it's become a private arrangement for satisfaction of individuals. I think that sentiment 
whether expressly expressed or not, is is behind that fuel is behind a lot what fuels the modern hotbed of debates around marriage. Right? Uh, one, I think you need look no further than the sexual revolution of the '60s and how it's progressed. Um, and actually, a guy named Peter Berkowitz, who writes for the Atlantic Monthly, did that for me, and I have a quote for him. Um, Listen to what he says here. He says, whereas in the 60s and 70s, at the dawn of the sexual revolution, radical college students referred to one of their newfound freedoms as the now quaint-sounding making love, a euphemism that emancipated sex from marriage but preserved the link to romance. In the 80s, it was referred to just as having sex, which severed the biological drive from emotional attachment. Today, students adopt a mechanical metaphor, speaking of hooking up, like railroad cars and computer docking stations, which may constitute a gain in precision, allowing for discrimination among forms of coupling. Sounds really boring. Um, I came across this other article that I think I could spend weeks on uh, in the New York Times. I came upon this uh, a year ago. It was called Sex on Campus. She can play that game, too. And this is what it kind of, the article opened up with this. Dating in college has mostly gone the way of the landline, replaced by hooking up with the emotional entang- without the emotional entanglement of a relationship. It goes on to, to give some quotes from some women interviewed um, at, at, at Penn. Uh, one, one quote was, relationships are like taking a four-hour class. Uh, one woman said that college is a unique, unique life stage where only the only obligation should be your own self-development. And so the article concludes, in the midst of those kind of sentiments, the hookup culture fits right in, right? All that to say, okay, I'm not saying all that because you're all into hooking up. That's not what I'm saying. Or that that's what you're all prone to. But I say all that um, to identify the wider culture around us is symptomatic of a widespread view that we all are prone to. And that view is this, that relationships are about me. That relationships are about my advancement, about my fulfillment and my satisfaction. And that's what relationships should be used for. Ironically, no one wants to be used. Here's the thing. That is exactly the opposite of biblical marriage. That's what biblical marriage is not. Think about this. If marriage is self-fulfillment and not self-denial, what does that require? What does a marriage that is self-fulfillment require? It, re- it requires a spouse who is either low or no maintenance. Meaning that they meet your needs while making no claims on you. Right? And the thing is, is we usually fall into two extremes uh, in our view of marriage. One is, uh, we usually view it as too romantic or too idealistic, which is interesting because we have a pessimistic view of marriage, at least the realities of it, but we have this very romanticized view of it, right? You only need to look at how many of you ladies flock to that show, The Bachelor. You know how much of a train wreck that show is going to be, but I think all of you are just like holding on to this hope that the perfect match is going to happen, right? We all all just have that, not we all, you all, um, I never watch it, but guys, guys. Guys are not immune to this. Guys, every guy is looking for Kate Upton leading a Bible study, right? Um, just as romantic and idealistic of a thought. When you hold, when you hold marriage in a romanticized or idealistic uh, terms, what you end up doing is under, um, underestimating the influence of sin. One of the most powerful things that, some, that a guy, that the pastor at our wedding said that I won't forget is, 
where there was now where there was one sinner, there's now two. <laughs> that's marriage, right? Um, that's why it is complicated. That's why it is hard. Um, we can flip to the other side and be pessimistic and cynical. But to be pessimistic and cynical about marriage is then to completely misunderstand its divine origin. That God intended something life-giving in it. That's why it's the first human relationship. C.S. Lewis, as always, he, I think he has a quote on everything. Um, but here's a great quote of his. He says, if you love anything, if you love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, then you must give your heart to no one. I thought that was a beautiful quote. I just want to wrap this general thought up with this. What if marriage, what if it is in marriage, originally and divinely instituted, that God chose so wondrously to display something life-giving and healing about himself and about us? How could that be? Paul calls it a profound mystery, right? So let's move on. Roles. So Paul immediately takes up roles here, roles within the marriage. And um, so much that we could talk about here, and I'm going to just take up the wife's role and the husband's role, um, and we can talk later, but um, here it is. First, the wife's role, and we all hate it, it makes our stomachs turn because we hate this word, submit, right? But there's a reason I read verse 21. In verse 21, he concluded that section by telling all of us, To submit to one another out of reference to Christ. And he immediately then says, and wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay? Um, The word Paul uses is a military term, which maybe doesn't, that maybe makes it worse. I don't know. Um, But think about this. Um, What kind of army would there be? If there were no foot, if there were no distinction between foot soldiers and generals, right? That army would be utter chaos, right? Um, what, get this out of the way right here. What Paul says in no way, in no way is he speaking to the inherent value of women or the inherent value of femininity. That's not what he's getting at. He's talking about a role within a specific context being marriage. Okay. Paul's been describing a single new humanity, right, in Jesus. He's talked in this letter about the oneness of all peoples. And to illustrate that, he talked about Jew and Gentile. In Colossians, he talks about slave and free. A single humanity in Christ. All equal, all the same before God in Christ. In Galatians, he specifically says male and female. We're all one, okay? So submit. What does this mean? This is uh, heavily influenced by my campus minister, Les Newsom, and how he... um, explain this. But think about it like this. The wife, as her role as a wife within the context of marriage, her submission, her submitting, submission makes it sound worse, I guess, her submitting. I think the best way to think of it is this. The wife committing, committing herself to be behind her man, to have his back, to support him. She is someone that is his biggest fan. Meaning she, more than anyone, wants him to succeed the most. And she lets him know it. She's committing herself to being on his team. To be a wife is to use your power to empower another. To enable that person to be what he was created to be. 
So you see, the command is not about taking your place. It's not about taking off your shoes and getting in the kitchen and getting to work, right? Um, that's not, not it, okay? What if there is something in man, in men, that needs what Paul calls for here? In fact, think about at the beginning of all history, what we are told is that man by himself was glaringly incomplete. In fact, Paul, uh, God said it was not good that man is alone. And man is actually, you think about this, man, Adam, is actually made to feel his incompleteness. He's made to feel his inadequacy. There was no suitor in all of creation, no helper found suitable for him. And by the way, that word helper doesn't mean sidekick. The Holy Spirit is also called the helper. Okay? Then woman is created and she is his man's shining jewel, his crown. And only as they are together are they together the crown of creation. Okay? God's creation complete as they are in harmony with one another and with their creator. So there is something in the heart of man that is glaringly incomplete. And there's something in the heart of man that needs to know that you, ladies, think he is great. He longs to know he's significant. He longs to know that he is making his mark. The man is woefully incomplete without someone making him feel, in, uh, making him feel significant. I'm going to do this with both of them. There's a book called His Needs, Her Needs. And in this book, the author cites a secular study about the top five things that men and women listen, uh, listed in what they were looking for in a partner. Okay? Or in marriage. Okay? And so, what do you think... So I'll give you the five for the men. Um... What do you think the top five needs? What, what do you think was number one for the man? Not, all right, not um, surprisingly, sex, right? The thing is, is that's not just chemicals and hormones, okay? You think about it. It's in that place, in the bonds of matrimony, that the man finds a significance, that he's empowered, and that he finds security in the bond of relationship. Okay, number two, he said, companionship. Oh, he wants to know that he has someone to do things together with. Right. Number three, trust. He wants to know he has someone that trusts him. That believes in him. Right. Number four is domestic support, meaning that he needs to know that he has a soft place to land, a safe place and that he can find it in his wife. Number five, remember, this is a secular study. This isn't a Christian study. Number five, admiration. That he wants and he needs to know that he makes you happy. Guys want to know that. And they find significance in it. And here's the thing. What do all five of those scream? They all scream significance. So the question is to conclude this thought. And we could say so much more, I know. What if the role, ladies, that God designed for you in marriage was to complete that for him? That he cannot find significance without you, whether he admits it or not. To empower him to be what he's created to be. Second one, husbands, right? Um, Husband's role, as Paul so eloquently says, and again we bristle, that the husband is the head 
of the wife. Man's headship. And see here, he states it as a fact, okay? It's based in creation. It's the ground for the wife's submission to him, that he is the head. But again, it's nothing inherent in him that makes him the head. It's not about his superiority. It's about his God-given role in the context of marriage. It's a divine ordering. And here's the thing. Did you notice that there was a word that was never used in this uh, passage? It's the word authority. In no shape or form is the word authority ever used in this passage. Paul doesn't say, so guys, rule your wives well. He doesn't say that. What does he say? The husband plays his role as a husband by loving his wife. By loving his wife. Now wipe away all your sentimental notions here. It's not a feeling... It's not feeling romantic. It's not, just, it's not just feeling romantic towards your wife. It's not just telling her you love her. Um, something I'm very bad at, as Carrie will tell you. Um, I'm sh- ashamed enough to admit it. I don't know. Um, verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now here, I'm not as, I'm not so stupid as to stand up here and say, see ladies, the guys have it harder than you, right? If anybody says that to you, you can kick them wherever you want to. Um, I would say actually, ladies, you have it infinitely harder because you're supposed to love the, love your husbands as the church loves Jesus. I would say it's pretty easy for the church to love Jesus and it's pretty hard to love people that have nothing in common with Jesus being us, right? Um, But guys, do not miss the weightiness of what Paul demands of you here. Love your wives as Christ. Not try to love them. Not make an attempt. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your wife wants you to give yourself up for her. Jesus' commitment uh, to his bride that Paul outlines here is that he loved her, that he gave himself up for her, that he sanctifies her, that he cleansed her, and that he will present her with splendor. Okay? So in the sense that husbands need respect, need significance, wives need self-sacrifice. And I stole this uh, illustration, but it's easy to say, uh, this is an illustration somebody used that one time he heard a sermon on this passage and the pastor spent 30 minutes talking about the wife's role to the husband. And then, then he read the verse, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and said, let's bow our heads and pray. Um, it's easy to say, guys, you need to be willing to die for your lady, right? I know my wife feels this way and I know every woman probably feels this way. No woman wants her man to die. Right? No woman wants her man to die. What they want is a man who will live for them. And the way that you live for your wife is by dying to yourself every day. Because ladies, we love ourselves. That's why Paul says, oh, and to, just to drive this home, you need to love her as you love yourself. We do love ourselves. That's why we're crappy husbands. Headship does involve initiative. It does involve leadership, okay? As Christ came after us, as Christ leads his church. But as Christ does it, he does it all in love. Jesus didn't use his power to oppress or to exert his rule, but he gave himself up for our sakes. His needs, her needs again. 
top five things that women said for her needs in marriage. Number one, affection. Secular study, right? Women, thousands of women surveyed. I don't know if it was thousands, but women surveyed. Number one, affection. She needs to feel valued. She needs to feel cherished. That's what she longs for. Number two, conversation, right? Um, A man affirms his wife's importance when he lets her in on his life and when he invests or takes interest in hers, right? Conversation is key to that. Number three, honesty and openness. She needs to know that she knows more about you than anyone else. That she is further in, in your life, than anyone else. Number four, financial support. Okay, now you think, oh, she just wants my credit card. That's not what that means. Studies show, again, you know, you just say studies show in a sermon, people are like, oh, okay. Um, But I'll say it again. (laughs) Studies show, women tend to view money as security. Whereas men see it as conquest. That's why we're like, we need more, right? All the time. Um, Not saying we don't all want more. We all want more. But the woman feels secure when she's provided for, right? Number five, family commitment. She needs to know that she and your family are number one over work, over play, over anything. What do all of those scream when women surveyed, when those, that becomes the majority, the top five? What, is, what do all those scream? Love. She wants to be loved. She wants to be lived for. She doesn't want you to die for her. She was built to be loved by you. And it's not a feeling. It's something that you do. The wife needs self-sacrifice from her husband. She needs another to give himself up for her. You know, girls, I I think this is safe to say. I mean, I I think over years of youth ministry and talking with all y'all, I think a, a girl thing, if I can say that, is to struggle with judgment, right? Girls openly struggle with feeling judged in many different areas, whether it's looks, uh, weight, dress, desires in life, like what you want to be, whether you want to be a mother, whether you want a career. There, there usually comes a, a, a degree of feeling judged in all those things. Men, when she knows that you cherish her, she can begin to recover from all those things in her life that she's felt judged by. She can recover from those things that she feels have been judging her her whole life. Ladies, I want you to notice here. Paul instructs men to love their wives three times. Three times he says, love your wife. Okay? He knows that we will struggle to do it. He knows we're terrible at it. And he gives us command to do it. But again, think, he commands us to love three times. Okay, Um, meaning, take this back to yours, meaning the call for you to submit, the call for you to submit is for you to submit to a lover, not an ogre, as John Stott so eloquently put it. If the man or the men that you date are not men that you want to lead you, are not men that you want leading you, that who, not men that can lead you. That means they are men that cannot love you. So if you think like, well, we got the love, maybe we can work on the other stuff later. If he's not a man you want leading you, he's not a man that can love you. Final thing, close this quickly, redemption. Verse 31, 32. He cites this thing from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. 
says this mystery is profound. The literal word is mega. It's a mega mystery. That makes it sound cooler. Paul is saying that when a man and woman come into union together in marriage, not just sex, I'm not just talking about sex, but just the union of marriage, it is a glorious mutuality. A glorious mutuality, not hierarchy. Okay? One flesh, so intimately connected that it's hard to know where one begins and the other ends. There's a great reason, y'all, please take this in, that Paul gives us imperatives here. Because he knows it will be hard. I can tell you from experience, marriage is glorious. It's glorious. I love it. But it's hard. Some of you carry scars of broken marriages... And you know that you will for the rest of your life. But here's the thing. Thanks be to God that our relationships, marriage or otherwise, are not ends unto themselves. Hear that. Marriages, relationships are not ends unto themselves. In other words, if you think about marriage, marriage is not that which redeems. Marriage will not redeem you. Marriage will not redeem your relationship. Marriage will not make you a better person. So many of us have grown up hearing from the church that if you just save it for marriage, be it sex or anything else, then it'll be the best thing ever, right? Marriage does not redeem. So no wonder the pessimism that rages... Because when we hear that marriage is supposed to make things better in, 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 that, in that terminology, we know that's not true because we've seen it. Keller says this. Think about it. Marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being more than any other relationship can. Okay? We know how hard it is to live with other people. Okay? Marriage brings you in closer proximity to another human being more than any other relationship can. So you think about this as another quote that Keller quotes somebody else. Uh, it's not worth saying their name. Um, but you think about this. Why should a neurotic, selfish, immature person suddenly become an angel when he falls in love? Right? It's not going to happen, necessarily. It's the illusion. It's this illusion that if you find your soulmate, if you find just the right person, everything wrong with you will be healed. What have you done, though, in that equation? You've made the other person God. And they cannot bear the weight of that. And they will disappoint you, if not crush you. Verse 32, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It was Shakespeare. That said, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players, actors. No, not players, sorry. Um, sorry, just ruined a great moment. What if, what if, what if the function of Christian biblical marriage is to portray the gospel to the world? That's exactly what Paul says its purpose is. And here's the thing. That's precisely why every marriage needs the gospel. 
On earth, Jesus did not use his power to oppress, but he sacrificed everything to bring us into union with him. So if God, if you think about this, if God had Jesus in mind in the beginning when he instituted marriage, then that means marriage only works to the degree that it patterns itself after God's self-giving love. Marriage can only work to the degree that it patterns itself after God's self-giving love. Marriage will not redeem you. But the God behind it will. And he promises he will. It's a love, as we sang, that never fails. And it is a love that marriage is to continually rely on. Because we are sinners. And when marriages continually rely on it and not themselves, then it continually points us to it. Relationships are messy. Marriage is messy. God loving people like you and me is messy, but He gave up everything for it, even His own Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to know the truth that marriage points us to. Knowing that our marriages in and of themselves can do only damage. But when you are there, when the healing love of your gospel is there and we are pointed to it and it's working grace in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriage, with our parents, with our spouses, with our friends with our bosses, wherever it might be. You've promised to bring about wholeness and unity, grace, truth, and love. Father, we know that we cannot bring about these things in our relationships on our own. We need you. We need the love of your son and we need the power of your spirit. Pray that you would be that to us in Jesus' name. Amen.